All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Two Philosophers Drink Beer and Discuss Film. I am Dr. Daniel Murphy, and as always, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Gregory David Jackson. Greg, how's it going? Uh, fantastic now, Dan, I have to say. Good day, good weather. Uh, moved into a new home out in, in Ireland, and uh, yeah, it's beautiful out. It's uh, it's hard not to um, not to love it, I suppose, you know? Yeah, I was chatting to my brother today, and he was saying it's 30 degrees, more or less, in Ireland today. And I must say that we're recording this around mid-July 2021 and we had that weather here in Copenhagen last week and it's a bit too much I have to say I was going to sleep at night and it was still 22 degrees had loads of windows open couldn't even have a sheet on me while I was sleeping so it's nicer here now it's a little bit less intense it's still like mid-20s but in the evenings it drops below 20 which is lovely and cool that's nice you understand or I understand in these moments at least where they used to think the sun was a god you know yeah absolutely it's like it comes out, everything's delicious and amazing. You feel kind of lethargic and like you don't want to do anything. And that's brilliant, you know? Yeah, everybody's in a good mood, yeah. It's a more tangible God than any others I've seen. <laughs> put, put it that way, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, apart from that, it's funny. I, I uh, Given that the the, the listeners, the, the the regular listeners probably know that I, I'm, a, I'm a celiac. I usually drink gluten-free beers. But I've been on a bit of a... A journey recently because uh, I've been still quite unwell and some of the symptoms were kind of similar to that when I was, um, you know, reacting to gluten early on. Mm. So I've been in and out of hospital a lot feeling kind of, you know, just feeling ill and stuff. And according to them, they said I was misdiagnosed. I, I'm not actually a celiac. I, I was, was misdiagnosed by my doctor, according to the, the specialists. Wow. And they trumped her in that way. It was funny. I did ask them. I said, well, my GP now said. And they were like, well, we're the specialists. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, all right, fair enough. But so they told me I was. So I, I've been on this journey to figure out what's been going on. And in that process, I've been visiting a nutritionist and that kind of thing. Yeah. And the, the latest thing, actually, is that. Uh, they reckon that I have a yeast intolerance, okay. Um, which which is sort of unfortunately puts me out of the business of beer drinking. Yeah, uh, I'm just thinking so, it puts our podcast in jeopardy a little bit. <laughs> well, don't don't worry, folks. Uh, I've got a, a glass of whiskey here beside me, which I hear is is fine to drink uh, despite a yeast intolerance. So, so we're now just two philosophers who drink <laughs> undescript <laughs> alcohol and talk about film doesn't roll off the tongue as well well you know fortunately i'm still here to drink beer so i'm gonna crack one open here that's great then you know i think the beer it's a placeholder really isn't it you know it's a it's a sign it's like now's time to relax and think about some big ideas exactly you know because how we came up with the idea for this podcast it was us when we had finished our phds we didn't see each other as regularly we were in the midst of a global pandemic and we kind of missed the days when we were PhD students. And after a long day of researching and writing, we would go to the pub and have right. a couple of beers and just chat about stuff. And a lot of the time we would be talking about movies, for instance, and we'd be dissecting them. So, again, as you say, the beer or the alcohol is the placeholder for the conversation. And we'll keep that going no matter what. Exactly. All right, so today we're discussing the 1996 film Trainspawn, directed by Danny Boyle and starring Ewan McGregor. Um, obviously a bit of a cult classic here mm. and a film with a lot to 
to speak to, I think, uh, on, on a couple of different issues. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this, Dan. I think I'll, I'll throw it back to you first, uh, if that's okay. And uh, tell me, how did you find this film? What's interesting in there for you? So yeah, thanks, Greg. I'll uh, try my best to offer some insightful points here. Now, obviously, the main issue in this movie is that of addiction. You know, we follow a group of heroin addicts through Glasgow in the mid-90s when capitalism was really booming at its most bombastic level. Um, We had the Celtic Tiger in Ireland during that time, but, you know, we have the runoff from the neoliberal policies that were implemented in Wall Street and in British national banks in the late 80s. So we have this unregulated capitalism where everybody is kind of consuming and living life to its fullest, living life large. Everybody has a lust for life to kind of quote the Iggy Pop song that opens the movie. Now, when we talk about addiction, there's many different ways in which we can talk about this. You know, we can talk about addiction as a psychological issue that, you know, some people will say there's chemical imbalances in certain people's brains that leaves them more susceptible to addiction. We can talk about it as a social issue that people from certain social backgrounds are more susceptible to be addicts. So I don't want to offer any sort of definitive reading of addiction. What I want to do is approach it from a very specific philosophical perspective, and that is through an existential phenomenological perspective. Now, I think a good way of getting into this is by approaching how the movie frames the issue of addiction, right? Because Mm -hmm. even though we have a very clear set of addicts in the movie, namely the group who are engaging in taking heroin and taking drugs, for me, it seems that everybody is an addict in some way in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think how this becomes clear is through the idea of escape Right. That it seems that everyone in the movie is trying to escape from society in one way or another. So we have the opening monologue about choose life, you know, choose the big TV, choose the career. This is clearly what Renton and his friends are trying to escape from. They don't want this regular nine to five job kind of life. Right. They want to escape and do something else. And the way that they do it is through their drug use. Right. But we also see the desire to escape in Renton's parents, right? We see them gambling a lot, right? They go to bingo nights. They are, there's another scene where when he's trying to find the toilet, he goes into the the book uh, the bookmaker shop where everybody's gambling. So we have people who may have a nine to five job who are also looking to escape. They're looking to gamble to gain financial gain so they can escape from their daily grind so to speak we have at the start when they're playing football against a group of people who are all in kind of professional football garb right these are trying to Mm. escape from their nine to five and pretend to live this kind of fantasy as a professional athlete right and then we have like there's lots of references we have the references to pop culture to james bond uh we have Begbie, who doesn't partake in drug taking, but he escapes through violence. He has this kind of way of getting out the constraints of polite society by being ultra violent, to use that kind of phrase from right. Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and then there's like stuff got to do with um, prescription drugs. There's some characters who are addicted to prescription drugs. So everybody right. in the movie, not just the clear addicts, are all looking to escape from society in one way or another, right? And This made me think of the early work of Emmanuel Levinas. Um, Levinas says that this need to escape is a human trait, right? right? That it's not something that just one particular type of person has like an addict, but every human being 
is constituted on their need to escape, right? Yeah. Now, for Levinas, the human being and what we usually class the human being as, namely as a rational agent, somebody who has the ability to reflect upon themselves, to use reason, to use language, whereas the history of philosophy will see this as a given, that that's just a trait that human beings have. For Levinas, this is an achievement, that something happens in existence that offers a revolution of existence, right? And what Levinas thinks is that at our base level, a human being is just a brute material being that needs to actually satisfy its need to be. That being in itself is not just present. That being and beings have to sustain themselves in being, right? In order for us to exist, we have to actually respond to our existence, right? We have to eat, we have to breed, we have to drink water, right? Right. So there, there's a kind of claim on us. A part, part of living life is responding to like my something that's almost outside of myself. I, I don't want to have to eat if I'm busy reading a great work in philosophy or something. But, you know, your body will eventually tell you, well, you're not able to concentrate anymore until you eat. Is that the kind of thing he's trying to capture? Yeah, exactly. That there is this material responsibility that we have as an existing being, right? Okay. That we can't escape from, right? But what's interesting about Levinas is that we nevertheless exhibit the desire to escape from this, that as human beings, this is not enough for us as existing beings, that if our existence is just about me and our basic need to exist, then we kind of cease to be human beings. We become like everything else in being. We become like plants, trees, animals. What is it that actually differentiates us from anything else here, right? Jeez, I'm, I'm really reminded of there. And I wonder if uh, if you would agree with, you know, this argument people make where they say, well, it's just natural. You know, like, so for example, eating meat. Oh, animals eat meat. It's natural. Yeah. But actually what like distinguishes human beings from a lion, for example, is that the human being is able to reflect on its actions and ask, do I want to act otherwise? And is, so is that the kind of what he's getting at? Then? Yeah, so he's getting at that, but he's saying that the human being's ability to do this is not just a given. Something happens yeah. within the human being's experience that allows it to actually reflect upon itself. Right. Mm. But at a base level, what we're doing is satisfying our needs to be right. Right. Spinoza was a philosopher who Levinas quotes. He talks about the conatus ascendi, the, the essential condition of anything that exists is this perseverance in being that you're you're not just being you have to preserve your being. You have to respond right. to being. There's a weight that being presses onto you. This is what happens when we feel hungry, when we feel tired. You know, Levinas will talk about different moods, fatigue, for instance. When we experience fatigue, this is our actual, you know, muscles being actually pressed down by our need to move. We have to get up, we have to go to work, but yet we feel exhausted, right? Nausea, right? Yeah, exactly. Nausea. So these are all kind of moods, he says, where it's being is not just this benign static thing it's actually something that places a demand onto you and we have to respond to actually be ourselves right right and so nor is being the kind of thing that we can just impose our own meaning on right this idea that oh it's all subjective and we've talked about being uncomfortable with that kind of subjective objective distinction before but you know this idea that somehow the world is this kind of neutral space where human beings project meanings onto seems to miss a little bit of what Levinas is talking here right that there's actually something about being that makes a claim on me that I have to respond to you know 
if I if I wake up and my bladder is full, I can't wish it away. I have to respond to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So this response to being that you just mentioned, what Levinas says is that while it is kind of a weight that's on us, that it's actually not something pleasant. Nevertheless, when we do satisfy our being and we assert our own being in being, that mm. it's actually enjoyable. It's a pleasurable right. thing. When we have our needs satisfied, then we can actually go about, you know, enjoying life, right? Mm. And I think what's interesting in the movie is how Renton and his friends, and Renton in particular, talks about taking drugs. He says, the thing that people don't get when they're condemning us, they're saying you need to get clean, is how pleasurable it is, right? Yeah. Um, not that, you know, I'm condoning anything about this. I'm just kind of quoting what's going on in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, I think there's a difference between the type of pleasure he gets and the addicts get from taking drugs, from the pleasure that his parents get from gambling and drinking and mm. the people who are eating lots of food and who are responding to their being and getting enjoyment out of that, the people who are buying stuff, they're trying to escape from the daily grind by buying commodities, you know, buying the big right. TV, the, the fast car. There's a different type of pleasure at play here. Mm -hmm. So just to address the latter of these first, when we talk about the pleasure that people get from responding to the weight of being, in society so say you go to work you get money so you can actually live and you can sustain yourself and being but after that once you have your money you can buy lots of stuff and you enjoy doing that or you go mm. to a restaurant or you go out with your friends and drink and you enjoy that this is something that actually gives you a stronger sense of self that yourself is constituted here on the basis of enjoyment that you are this mm. being it's almost like a hedonistic type of thing right right that you've asserted yourself in being and you're getting power from asserting yourself in being you're enjoying your life over and against everybody else right it's it's kind of like an egotistical type of existence where your main existence is about responding to your own materiality and enjoying that right so you gain yourself through your enjoyment at this level. Now, where I think this is different for the drug addicts in the movie is that when they take drugs and when they're getting pleasure from it, they actually lose their sense of self. It's actually they lose all agency. There's that scene where he kind of sinks into the floor, right? Yeah. And he's completely lost his ability to act as a being, right? Now, Levinas yeah. would say this is him sinking into the ilia that there is the brute fact of being itself, that he's lost himself in existence, right? Yeah. While still actually existing, right? But nevertheless, he'll always have to come back, right? And actually respond to his materiality again. So when they actually give him the adrenaline shot in the hospital, he's back again and yet he has to respond to his materiality again, right? So, so is it that he's caught in this cycle of, you know, satisfying his base needs which you know Levinas says is a part of our, our kind of part of being an existence in in the world um and yet there's something that ultimately doesn't isn't fulfilled in that process and so like is that when you're caught in the Iliad just trying to satisfy these desires that ultimately never become satisfied yeah I think it's a little bit different for Renton and his friends, the drug addicts from the rest of the addicts, I'll call the regular people who are trying to escape their everyday life. I think yeah. what the rest of the people are doing in society is trying to actually 
give themselves a sense of self that is more than them as a nine to five person that makes them feel strong and powerful and a sense of pleasure that they don't get from their daily lives right whereas for renting and the addicts it's almost as if as getting close to death as possible without dying Mm. right Mm. now everybody has to respond to their being all of the time right when we satisfy our need to eat for instance we assert ourselves in being only temporarily right then we'll get the desire to actually eat again and then we'll have to eat again to actually assert ourselves in being. So you either do that or you die, right? And I think what Renton and his friends are trying to do is trying to get as close to this experience of death, of not having that need to respond to one's own materiality, right? The pressure that that is put onto his boy being, yeah. So so it's like that moment of like, just you really need to pee and then you've just satisfied it. And they're trying to hold on to that in some way, but ultimately they're not able to. Yeah, so they're trying to escape from this constant need to respond to their own materiality, to get out yeah. of this cycle, right? Because right. this is the the human being as a material thing is just turned back on itself. We're in this endless cycle of just satisfying our own need to be, right? And mm. whereas the everyday people thinks they're in control of their lives by buying commodities, by drinking, by having fun doing this, they're not in control of their lives at all. They're they're not free. There's no freedom here. They're slaves to their own material existence, right? Yeah. Whereas Renton and his friends want to try and free themselves from this cycle, as close as they can but the ultimate freedom is death basically and they don't want to die right now what's interesting about levinas here is that there's ultimately no escape from this need to satisfy one's materiality and that it actually is a process of despair right that human beings don't live a satisfying existence if that's what their life is right right and for levinas there's something much greater outside of this process within human experience right and that's our responsibility towards others and as I said mm. earlier on, for Levinas, it's an achievement, the idea of human consciousness, human self-awareness, the human being's ability to reflect upon itself. That's an achievement. Right. And he thinks yeah. it's achieved through our responsibility to the other, that when we encounter other people who are suffering materially, they actually allow us to question that existence is just about satisfying and responding to one's own material existence. That gives us the ability to see something more in life than that. And that is ultimately that we can come together as a society, that we can help people in need, right? And I think we see this in the movie and we actually see the tragic consequences of not responding to the other in the movie through the figure of the dead baby, right? So here we are in this drug house where they all go to take drugs, where they also try to escape from their material responsibility. And while they're escaping to a point of near death where they actually don't have any agency, this baby suffers the ultimate consequence and does. Because the baby can't actually respond to its own materiality. This is what it means to be a parent. You actually prioritize the being, the material being of the child over your own being, right? So because they've actually neglected this fundamental aspect of human experience, what Levinas will call the confrontation with the face of the other, where we encounter the suffering of another being, where we encounter another being who can't satisfy their own materiality. Because they ignored that, we have something completely unhuman happen. And life Mm. is reduced to its most basic element, namely being sustaining itself and being, right? So I think from an existential phenomenological perspective, just to sum this up, we can say that 
everybody is an addict in some way because we all have to respond to our own being, right? But what's interesting in relation to the movie is the type of addiction that Renton and Sick Boy and his friends are embarking on is one that tries to nullify all responsibility, is one that tries to escape from one's material responsibility, Mm -hmm. this incessant need to assert oneself in being, to escape from that as close as one can without dying. And as a result of this, we see the tragic irresponsibility of this innocent baby right now Mm. i don't want to let the other addicts in the movie like his parents who are addicted to gambling who like begbie who's addicted to fight and escape you know their material responsibility can be just as selfish right that Mm. it is an egoism and most of the time people who are just caught up in their own enjoyment in life whether it's through consumption or gambling or violence or just actually satisfying one's desires you know, most of the time people who are on this path, this hedonistic path, will ignore the needs of others as well, right? Mm. So I think the overall issue here is that the danger of addiction is that it dulls our responsibility towards others. And even though the society that they've depicted in this movie is terrible, one of just mass consumption and economic gain and, you know, choose a big house, choose your TV, that irrespective of this society in general is always constituted on the basis of some responsibility towards others and i think that is the real danger that is depicted in this movie through the issue of addiction yeah dan that was a really really interesting uh insight there into the sort of i mean nature of addiction sure but just how how close to home the almost the, the kind of addictive behavior that we all have as a necessity in in responding to our earthly desires i guess mm. Uh, I know I've got some some thoughts on this. I, I not only am I sort of dealing emotionally with reminder of that of that just awful scene in the film with the the baby, but I also I'm drinking fucking whiskey. So I realized I realized I, I should really go first uh, in in most episodes because I can already feel had a half, half a glass <laughs> and uh, I'm already a bit feeling. It. So forgive me if I'm not quite as uh, as loose. Yeah, but like maybe as, you've as you are, liberated but. yourself from all your presuppositions <laughs> exactly so you're ready to flow <laughs> satisfied my my earthly desires um yeah well for me i mean the most important part of this film is the opening scene and and maybe the final scene as well i mean obviously they're key scenes anyway but the the opening scene relatively well known at this stage you spoke about it a bit as well you know our protagonist mark renton um is discussing i suppose that the liberties of choice available under free market capitalism yeah you know especially at this time right as you pointed out mid 90s you know neoliberal economic policies firmly entrenched in the uk under thatcher uh, in the 80s um and and so this is the 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 context that we're we're in now i just mentioned neoliberalism there i think it's a term that's thrown around a lot so i I just want to define it a little bit you know so so to give it some more substance so what i mean when i speak about neoliberalism is a general political economic tendency toward reducing regulations and free market enterprise and to kind of minimize as much as possible uh, government intervention on the markets and the private lives of citizens so that's sort of neoliberalism and it, and it undoubtedly results in in huge economic activity it's very productive for businesses yeah. it's great for economic expansion in the form of gdp you know, ex- these things accelerate radically. And 
lots of people get kind of rich quick in this sort of economic scheme, right? Mm. Um, well, we saw that in Ireland in the 1990s. <laughs> right, that's exactly it. You know, so the Celtic Tiger was big here and there was lots of money going around. It was fabulous, right? <laughs> we all <laughs> loved it. We, had, we didn't think of what it was relying on, yeah. but we, we all loved it, right? And of course, consumer choices radically expand, right? So, so this is what we see at the start of this film, right? With Ill McGregor telling us that we can, you know, choose a job, career, family, right? He talks about television, washing machines, cars, right? And he talks about dental, healthcare, mortgage repayments. You know, it almost feels, um, you know, emancipatory, mm-hmm. right? All these possibilities. And what 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 I think is really interesting about how this is written is that it begins and ends with the phrase "choose life," right? Mm. As if it were the only option, right? So it's choose life, and then he talks about consuming, consumption, buying, and then he ends with choose life, and and this is Fukuyama, right? This is the end of history thesis, right? This is the idea that was quite prominent at the time, you know, that there were really no big leftist revolution left right capitalism had won uh, uh, the real left war that was remaining was really a kind of cultural one centered around furthering inclusive practices maybe kind of slowly reforming certain excessive aspects of the economy rather than a kind of radical reevaluation of how we distribute resources right so that was the kind of uh, the, the idea there fukuyama famously put this in as kind of the end of history um, and he, he was wrong, ultimately, right? 9-11 is often looked at at the moment where this kind of became apparent to a lot of people in the West, right? People had either realized that this kind of paradise we built ourselves was dependent on the exploitation of the, the Middle East and lesser developed parts of the world, or or people just kind of realized, oh, we're not safe from terrorists yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah, and of course, if 9-11 wasn't enough, the global economic crash of 2008 firmly right. signaled the failure of neoliberalism when all of the major banks around the world had to be bailed out in a socialist type of policy, right? Right, for sure. Exactly. Socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, you know? Yeah. And so now now we're sort of left asking ourselves, you know, what kind of society do we want to be? Mm. You know, we're sort of torn in many ways between some new version of fascism, which we haven't quite figured out yet, but, you know, they're making a good effort of it um or there's the kind of there's really the continuation of the end of history people right in the form of people like biden or or you know even aoc and sanders to some degree Mm. right in that you know it's slightly more imaginative when it comes to kind of economic reforms uh, but basically it says you know capitalism is here to stay and and we have to just basically augment its excesses and and make it slightly more uh, liberal and then it will all be good to go yeah so it's like in scandinavia here it's you know a highly regulated version of capitalism basically right yeah yeah um and, and of course then there are these more radical groups that are kind of gaining more prominence now the sunrise movement for example or, or scholars like naomi klein who are sort of calling for a wide-scale you know, disruption of business as usual uh, in order to call for a just transition to a green new deal you know which would also see a radical redistrib- redistribution of wealth. Yeah. Um, so, you know, p- potentially one that's still sort of capitalist in nature, but we'll put a pin in that for now. So so Fukuyama was wrong uh, with this sense that we'd sort of entered the final stage of history, right? This idea that there were really no more major revolutions to be envisioned or won. We'd arrived, basically, and we just needed to make things slightly better. Mm. 
But now we know that our lifestyles depend on kind of on this very this very lifestyle depends on on the major exploitation of less developed parts of the world and of course the planet mm. you know but fukuyama was right about a particular way in which western society was operating at that time on a cultural and political level right so there was this idea that there was you know no communist revolution anymore it was steady slow liberalization of capitalism you know pushing for more inclusive practices positive uh, affirmation etc you know so so that's the kind of that was the kind of mood at the time and so although the film opens up sort of celebrating the excesses of consumer capitalism it, it also has a certain tension you know it's, it's apparent that Renton is a little skeptical of this way of life yeah. at least as its opening scene has us and, you know, because as I've already intimated, we're, we're increasingly becoming aware of the dark side to new, neoliberalism, right? Aside from market expansion, neoliberal economic policies also see to it that there is a, a major reduction in government safety nets, for example, social services, you know? Yeah. And as I said, regulations in businesses, right? Regulations which generally help prevent monopolies and grossly unethical behavior like like you pointed out, Dan, unregulated financial speculation, which resulted in the, the housing market collapse or the climate policies, yeah. where in some trading districts, um, corporations have the capacity to sue governments for getting in the way of their own profits. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, at a very basic level, you can sum up neoliberalism as the complete privatization of finance within society. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and and how the implications this has for politics. I mean, we've seen in, in Ireland, for example, Apple not paying taxes mm. and the government protecting them. Yeah. They, they don't want them to pay because it, for neoliberalism, economic activity trumps everything else, you know? Uh, and, and this is usually justified out of some dire philosophy around the notion of kind of pursuing self-interest as the highest good. I mean, speaking to what you were talking about mm. um, and kind of how Levinas would, would, you know, although he would say this is a, a kind of, part of our existence it's in no way the highest good human beings are marked by the capacity to reflect on that yeah. behavior and act otherwise but philosophers like ayn rand for example very influential in neoliberal circles is no uh, uh, the, the highest good is impure pursuing self-interest yeah. altruism is a is a kind of fraud yeah as you said like for levinas it's no good at all it's evil he equates it to this sustaining of oneself and being he actually calls it evil wow yeah yeah um so it's apparent that that Rendon, our, our protagonist is kind of skeptical of this dream he's being sold right where he has the kind of ultimate freedom to choose whatever he wants whether it's a, a car or television a career or whatever um, and, and I think it, it's interesting that this is framed in the film as a choice, right? Because mm. my view, at least, it's a it's a false choice, yeah. right? He can, he, and I think this is what the film is telling us, right? He either chooses life, as he calls it, which is all the things that he's a little bit skeptical of, or he chooses his own annihilation in the form of heroin, mm. right? And heroin addiction. So, so usually the, the choice to do heroin is understood as a sort of, of rejection, right? Right, That he, he kind of rejects this neoliberal world in a sort of hedonistic pursuit of his own pleasures, uh, which you were kind of speaking to a little bit uh, earlier on. Yeah. And then ultimately at the end of the film, so the, the kind of usual reading goes, he, he kind of decides to get back on the horse and kind of get banking or, or whatever he ends up doing. So he ends up choosing life at the end in, in some way, you know, but but it's not. It's, it's a false choice, right? As I, I sort of said earlier... 
that the hedonistic pursuit of your own pleasures or self-interest is a foundational part of neoliberal economic policies, right? Yeah. It's Ayn Rand 101. It's the highest good is self-interest. Um, and, and as you pointed this out as well, that like this is also a, an aspect of the lives of everyone, not only the heroin addicts. And, and so my idea here is really that his heroin use is an expression of the the very same fate as anyone else, the fate of neoliberalism, right? Which we either choose to do or we choose our own annihilation. And so the, the film is a sort of kind of dialectic between these kind of two options, which, which are ultimately seen to be the same, right? At, at the end of the film, he may choose life in the sense of going back to the business world. But to do so, he has to radically betray the community and friends that supported him. Yeah. And I think that's the real heart of this film for me, right? I think that the, the exploration of heroin abuse is kind of really harrowing and insightful. And I think you've given like a really great voice actually to a lot of the themes that are occurring there. But to me, there, there really is no difference between the life he lives and the life of everyone else, right? And I, and I think, you know, you point this out as well. You know, the film has kind of references to this when he, you know, the, in the, with gambling or, or in the, the pubs, they're kind, of, they're kind of legal forms of, of addiction. Yeah. They're all kind of, in some sense, the, the kind of same pursuit of, of hedonistic pleasure, um, which, kind of, which kind of really uh, you're, you're kind of speaking to uh, as well. So the real lesson of this film isn't, you know, don't do heroin. It's really like you're all addicts, whether you know it or not. You're addicted to consuming. You're addicted to destroying the planet through your lifestyle. You know, like every time I buy a cup of coffee from a shop, I'm literally, you know, shitting on the dreams of my children and children's children. And, you know, I don't care because I like the pillowy oat milk on my lips, right? <laughs> and I tell myself it's grand because it's oat milk, right? It's it's oat milk. It's not even real yeah. milk, right? But it's not grand. People died to pick me this coffee. Oil was spilled to deliver it to my local coffee mm. shop. It's a delicious thing. But I'm not different than Mark and his friends as they, you know, neglected that baby to the point of death. You know, I think that actually there's there's a, a very important equivocation between the life that the, that, that they live and, and actually the world that they're reject, rejecting. And, and actually, ultimately, they're, they're not rejecting it. They're almost living that same world to its logical conclusion uh, and i think that to me is where uh, uh this film is is kind of most compelling yeah no absolutely and i think you know what you've been saying about this supposed escape from society from the world mm -hmm. as a perceived rejection of society which is ultimately not a rejection at all it's the satisfaction of one's desires and needs this right. choosing life is to consume right it ultimately shows the inability of escape, right? right? That once we accept this as reality, as society, that we've already limited life, society, reality, right? And I think yeah. Levinas kind of says this as well. There's, you know, no escape from one's satisfaction of material needs. If you make that your life, that's all you're going to be doing until you're dead, right? So I think if that's what we constitute as life and if that's what we actually construct a society on, it's more of a totalitarian society, right? Yeah, where sure. freedom becomes the freedom of choice, whereas yeah. reality is interpreted as the satisfaction of one's own needs, right? And that's yeah. a good, as you were saying, with someone like Rand. Yeah. And just as you were talking about it, it makes me think of Herbert Marcuse, the yeah, Frankfurt School sure. philosopher who, you know, was one of a group of German philosophers who escaped 
Europe during the Nazi regime. They were all Jewish in origin, so they were in imminent danger on two counts as intellectuals and as Jewish people. And when they arrived in America, where they got refuge, they were horrified by society because they saw totalitarianism there as well in different ways. Sorry. And it was ultimately that you've reduced freedom to the freedom of choice. And because you're all living these pleasurable, enjoyable lives in your freedom of choice, any sort of genuine revolution where we authentically and seriously respond to the needs and the suffering of others and the suffering and needs of the planet is nullified almost entirely, right? And you kind of get this when you see backlashes to social movements today, right? To someone like Greta Thunberg, right? Even though she has a lot of supporters and we become much more conscious of this, you know, after the economic catastrophe of 2008, when we are now all more skeptical of neoliberalism. Well, those of us who weren't billionaires (laughs) anyway, we're more kind of receptive to people like Greta Thunberg, but there are still people in society who seek to ridicule her and seek to say, this is not a problem, right? Because they want to maintain the totalitarian structure that life is about Mm -hmm. the freedom of choice and consumption, right? So I think Marcuse is very relevant for what you're saying here as well. For sure. And yeah, exactly. And I think what's sort of interesting about Marcuse and kind of the one dimensional man is one of the one of his important works where he talks about this. You know, his idea is basically that, you know, modern technological society has improved living standards of the average person to the point where, you know, critique is has lost its power. Um, and, And he thinks, like you said, this occurs primarily through consumption. Right. So. I can can watch the same television as my boss. I can drive the same car as my boss even. Okay, I might have a serious mortgage, which leaves me in complete servitude to the banks, but we're both driving BMWs, right? So that's pretty cool. (laughs) And we can both go to the same fancy resort. And so, you know, the kind of Marxian critique of class consciousness, it it completely loses its power, you know? Yeah. And you might say, well, that's good, isn't it? Because, well, you, you don't have any need to complain then. Um, but first of all, things aren't good, right? This, you know, it wasn't the case maybe so much at Marcuse's time, but we've certainly seen at this point the horrors of kind of late stage capitalism and, uh, and and how it's kind of radically extended the divide between rich and poor. Right. You know, you know when shit hits a fan, it's austerity politics and, you know, right. the rich stay yeah. rich and the poor pay for the debt. The rich get richer, yeah. Dan, you know what I mean? Um but, but, you know, as, as you kind of point out, he says the freedom this brings isn't freedom at all. I actually have a, a quote written down here because I was wondering if, if this would come up. and It seemed relevant. He goes, leisure thrives in advanced industrial society, but it is unfree to the extent to which it is, it is ministered by business and politics. Yeah. Right. So that the and it speaks to this, this, this uh, notion of freedom that we've been kind of hitting on here, that we have this freedom of choice that feels kind of ra- amazing. I can go into a shop and I can choose between 30 different different drinks. And, you know, there's like Coke, but there's Pepsi and there's also yeah. Coke Cherry. And <laughs> it's incredible, all these options, right? But we don't get to think about the conditions of my economic existence or the the, the distribution of, of, of money in society or or, you know, basic structures of my reality are, are completely hidden from me. I have no I have lost uh, freedom in those regards. Yeah. Um, and what has replaced them is freedom of choice, of consumer choice, you know? Yeah. And so. 
you know, this is the situation of our protagonist in the film, right? He doesn't want part of this freedom, right? And, and he, he kind of, um, he frames this freedom in relation to choice. But, you know, I suppose my, my point here is he didn't choose something else, right? Heroin wasn't one choice amongst many choices in, in the marketplace, right? Uh, at worst, he, he just simply chooses something more kind of philosophically consistent with the economic policies of, of, our, of his time or our time. And at best, he chooses his own annihilation. Either way, as you said, there there seems to be for for uh, Marcuse at least and, and Adorno, what he later calls the kind of culture industry, that there really is no escape. Mm. And, and as you said, I think this is one of the for me this is one of the big points um, that the film is, is making. You know, yeah. E- even you know, even it's funny because I was even thinking about this with, as reading uh, uh, One Dimensional Man, and I don't think this would be a point that would be lost on Marcuse, but, you know, his book becomes kind of part then of the whole culture industry, that even the critique, I think this is his real fear around the thing, that that late-stage capitalism has gotten to a point where the critique of the system is itself a mode of creating, you know, more Capital, things yeah. to consume. Yeah. You know, it's more capitalism. And so I was reminded of this actually a number of years ago, but I remember... I was kind of into Vice, you know, the the Vice uh, uh, media, uh, and and they were seen as countercultural. Mm. You know, they were they were the subversive media organization, and the the kind of one of the big founders of Vice, I, I forget his name, but he was interviewing Barack Obama when Barack Obama was still the president, and of course he had to bring up the at the time, and it still is to some degree, but at the time, uh, cannabis legalization was a big kind of uh, talking point, and so. As a countercultural magazine, he asks Obama about if he's going to legalize cannabis, right? Which was the the obvious thing to do, uh, and not only even just from a kind of economic perspective around opening up markets and 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 it being kind of very consistent with neoliberal policies around removing government out of these things, um, or whatever else, but but also just the kind of uh, the ethical argument around the fact that this law was being used to systemically lock up mainly black men, um. And that's how kind of how how the 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 anti um, cannabis laws were were being utilized. So it was it was kind of a, a racial policy, and it was begun as a racial policy. I mean, there's evidence about this now. Nixon began the the war on drugs as a way of of locking up yeah. uh, political dissidents and, and black men. But so of course Obama was asked about this, and his response was, I mean, brilliant. The way Obama is is kind of brilliant for for uh, uh, ide- ideology, I suppose. And he sort of dismisses this argument and he frames it as a sort of special concern of some stoners and that really there are more important work for governments to be doing. And it's kind of, in many ways, a brilliant counter-argument because it completely uh, stifles proper debate. And the, the real debate in these issues is the ways in which these laws are being used, you know, how, you know, and as I said, kind of uh, being used toward um mass incarceration of black men um and but of course the vice whatever your man's name is says none of that completely accepts the critique laughs it off and moves on to the next point and and it's brilliant because it's it's that it's that you know it's it's about asking the wrong questions you know so so vice is in in the popular sphere seen to be this countercultural kind of media outlet um, and so 
many people are are, are watching them in that light. Mm. And then they think that they, oh, well, he asked about cannabis. Oh, they're clearly pro-cannabis, good at man vice. But actually what they did was stifle debate around the issue yeah. and, and help actually obfuscate the issue. And and that's the, the brilliance of the kind of uh, uh, the, the culture industry, as, as Adorno kind of calls it later on, that it ends up subsuming critique of itself into itself yeah and so as a result kind of proper critique becomes impossible mm. and and i think that there's the film is is speaking to this dimension of our current uh, world yeah absolutely greg thanks very much for those very insightful reflections on train spotting and thanks to you dan as always. <laughs> extremely insightful as well it's fantastic to to sit here uh, looking out my window, drinking a whiskey and, and having philosophical conversations <laughs> uh, with yourself. The good times are back. And of course, if you have any thoughts on train spotting, we'd love to hear them as well. We're always open and receptive to your comments. So please feel free to leave them on Twitter at Two Phil Podcast or also on Instagram at Two Phil Podcast. Yeah, so until next time, it's goodbye from Greg. And it's goodbye from Dan. <laughs>